is the uh, question before us this morning and the question that we will be unpacking together every Sunday for the next six months as we study our way through the Gospel of Mark. Who is Jesus for us as a church, for you personally? But first, good morning. (laughs) Welcome. Welcome to West Hills. It's good to see so many of y'all. My name is Will Duvall. I am the lead pastor here at West Hills now. (laughs) Thank you. If you're new... If you're new, as you can tell from that reaction, um, this is my first uh, morning being able to introduce myself as lead pastor, and it's so good to have you with us. Um, Not just because it's my first week, but again, because it's our first week in this journey together through the Gospel of Mark, which I'm really excited for, a journey that we're entitling Rooted, because as he makes clear from his opening verse, that is exactly what Mark, John Mark, intends to do for us, to root us through his gospel here, doctrinally, in a correct understanding of who Jesus is and was, the Son of God, and what he came to accomplish for us, the gospel, his death and resurrection for our sake. Uh, Mark may have been the earliest gospel account recorded. It's definitely the shortest, just 16 chapters compared to John's 21 and Luke's 24, Matthew's 28. Uh, Mark gives us just the facts Not a lot of interpretation, not a lot of theological frill tacked on. Mark is just going to tell it like it is. Uh, Whereas John was written primarily as an an apologetic, so that you may believe, John says. Mark, by contrast, seems to assume that his audience already believes. He's writing primarily to the church to simply remind us why. Why we believe and to root us deeper in our collective faith in Christ. And so... With that word of introduction and with the video set, let's dive in into chapter 14. You say, wait a minute. (laughs) Chapter 14 of 16, isn't that like watching the end of the movie first? Uh, Why why are we beginning in chapter 14? Um, I'll give you three reasons. First of all, if you don't already know the end of Jesus' story, I definitely don't want to wait until October to tell you. All right, this is, this is too important. You need to hear this morning about his atoning death, his life-giving resurrection for your sake, for your sins, your only hope for salvation. Secondly, I want us as a church to be more aware of the church calendar. Uh, for thousands of years now, Christians have observed seasons like Lent and Advent as built-in excuses within our rhythm of life together to spend greater time in deeper reflection on the gospel truths that we celebrate around these times of the year, Easter and Christmas. And so instead of thinking about Easter as the church's Super Bowl, I want to encourage us this morning to think of it as our March Madness. We're going to spend a whole month, March, celebrating uh, Christ's death and resurrection and into April. He is worth all the attention that we could give him. And finally, I want to suggest that sometimes beginning with the end of the story can actually make it come alive in a whole new way for us. I don't know if any any of y'all seen the movie Memento. Uh, Really good movie, interesting concept. The first scene of the movie is actually the end of the story. And then the rest of the movie flows in reverse chronological order, scene by scene. Um, to sort of explain how, how you got there, and it still has this cliffhanger ending. It's really good. I thought about doing all of Mark that way, 
going back to chapter 13, 12. I got confused even thinking about it, so I, I didn't want to confuse you in that way. But we will start with chapters 14 through 16. We'll end with chapter uh, 16, the resurrection, of course, on Easter. And then we'll go back to chapter 1, and we'll actually end in chapter 13, which works out because that is uh, Jesus' prediction of his second coming at the end of all of human history, which to me seem, seems like as good a place as any to end the story. So would you, as you're able, um, stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. We're going to study verses 1 through 11 this morning. I'll read it for us. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We are lost without it. We are lost without you. And so, Father, we pray now that you would bless and inspire our reading and understanding and interpretation of your word, just as you inspired and blessed and ordained its writing in the first place through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for being here with us, the interpreter of your word. Now, Father, would the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we pick up the story two days before the Passover. So this is Wednesday of Holy Week. Passover that year was on Friday when Jesus will be crucified, one chapter later. Now in Luke's gospel, the story of the priests plotting is followed immediately by the story of Judas's scheming. But Mark employs here one of his favorite literary techniques known as intercalation, which is just a fancy theological term, scholarly term for sandwiching. So, so Mark takes these two stories of deception from Luke, um, Judas and the, high pri and, and the chief priest, and he splits them and sandwiches in between them this beautiful story 
of wholehearted devotion from verses 3 through 9. And the idea with intercalation is that each one of the scenes is related to the others in a way that we're supposed to use them to help interpret each of the other scenes. And so we're going to treat this whole uh, section of verses 1 through 11 as one narrative unit, and we're going to see why I think Mark intentionally juxtaposes the reactions of his enemies, Jesus' enemies, uh, Judas and the priest, um, with the reaction, the response of the woman in verses 3 through 9. And actually, what we're going to find is there, there are four different responses to Jesus. And lest you anticipate that the right response in sermons as it goes is usually the last one, and tune out for the first three, I want to challenge you and I want to suggest to you this morning um, that we are all guilty of the first three responses to Jesus at times too. And so we need to hear, even as his followers, we need to hear all of these reminders and these exhortations this morning. So response number one to Jesus is we reject him. That is the response of the chief priests and the scribes in verses one through two. Why? Why do they reject Jesus? Well, two reasons. One's pragmatic and one is spiritual. The practical reason that they reject Jesus is that they have a vested interest in maintaining the societal status quo. As scholar A.Y. Collins explains, under Roman rule, the chief priests were leading members of the Sanhedrin, and of the internal government generally, the Roman sort of puppet government that they had established in Jerusalem. The scribes here are probably temple scribes who may have been concerned with the financial and organizational functions of the temple and who were therefore dependent on temple revenues for their livelihood. So this is the same group that wanted to, quote, destroy Jesus back in chapter 11 of Mark uh, as he posed a threat to their very way of life after he cleansed the temple. He came into town on a donkey. First thing he does, cleanse the temple, and they start plotting immediately to destroy him. But there is an even deeper, more diabolical reason for their rejection of Jesus here, and that is simply their sin. That's their hardness of heart. And I'll go ahead and make the turn to make this about us. In our sin, we cannot but reject Jesus. Romans 7.18 says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So if Jesus is the perfect embodiment of goodness, of godness, then there is nothing, and if there is nothing good in me inherently, in my natural, fleshly, original sin state, then I cannot do other than reject Jesus, save for a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to draw me towards him. In our flesh, we will always reject Jesus. Because as Jesus himself says in John chapter 3, darkness hates the light. Just as the religious leaders depend on the absence of a Messiah for their continued livelihood and relevance, because once something greater than the temple comes, they're out of a job, right? When Jesus comes and replaces the sacrificial system, replaces the temple, the priest, the scribes, they're out of a job. They depend on the absence of a Messiah. So too, darkness depends on the absence of light for its continued existence. The two are mutually exclusive. What is darkness? It's just the absence of light. 
Do you want to know how to make sure that your sin never dies? How to nurture and feed and and grow it steadily in your heart? Sin feeds off of secrecy, off of isolation, shame, off things being kept in the dark. If you want that sin in your own heart to continue to be a part of your story forever, just lock it up in a hidden closet in the back recesses of your heart and make sure no one ever finds out about it. See, rejection isn't just the response of Jesus' enemies, the skeptics and the apostates of the first or the 21st centuries. We've got to realize here that we all reject Jesus every single day. What is our sin if not a rejection of Jesus? The livelihood of our sin depends on us rejecting him. We must keep the light at bay lest our works be exposed for the darkness they are. And if we're honest, don't we sometimes like our sin? Can't can't we all identify with Paul there in Romans chapter 7 when he says, I mean, I know that I should hate my sin. I know that I should love Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, I just find that I keep on sinning. I I don't want to, and yet I kind of do want to. It's like the taste buds of my heart have become so acclimated to eating spiritual junk food for so long now that even though I know it's bad for me, even though I know I should prefer that healthy salad, every time I've eaten the salad, it's left me feeling completely fulfilled and nourished. And even though I'm always left feeling empty and gross, and I always regret it when instead I choose to binge eat an entire bag of Cheetos, nevertheless, when I walk in the kitchen and the two are sitting out on the counter, I'm still, there's something in me still that craves the Cheetos. What is wrong with me, Paul says? Who will save me from this body of death? Friends, that's what sin is. Sin is what's wrong with us. Sin is why Paul can say it's a body of death. And the only way to kill that sin, to consciously reject your own heart's natural disposition to reject Jesus, is to bring that darkness to the light. The first step is to admit you have a problem. Why? Not because you have to identify the enemy so you know how to tackle it. Not even primarily because you have to come to a place of humility and surrender. I want to suggest the first step is confession because you have got to starve that sin of the darkness that it feeds off by bringing it to the light. And so I ask you this morning, in what areas of your own life are you rejecting Jesus? What closets of your own heart Have you locked and thrown away the key? Because deep down, maybe you kind of like your sin. It served a function, a purpose for you. You have a choice to make this morning. I set before you today life and death, the scriptures say, blessing and curse, light and darkness. Therefore, choose life that you may, what? Live that you may truly live. 
life to the fullest. Response number two to Jesus is that we exploit him. We can reject him, we can exploit him. Verses 10 through 11, we skip forward to now, we find Judas's response, exploitation. To exploit means to utilize, especially for profit, to use selfishly for one's own ends. This is a little different than rejection. Both are forms of sin. But while rejection means wanting nothing to do with Jesus at all, exploiting him actually, I, I want to suggest, is even worse because it amounts to using Jesus opportunistically for one's own selfish personal gain. In Judas's case, it's for financial gain. Mark records in verse 4 that some were indignant at the woman's waist, but in John's parallel account of this same story in his gospel, we discover who the real instigator of the complaint here was. John says in chapter 12, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And why was Judas so concerned about this, so incensed? He said this, verse 6, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he was the treasurer of the group, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was stealing from Jesus and the other disciples. Haven't you ever wondered, this helps make sense of Judas's betrayal, have you ever wondered, how could anyone who followed Jesus around all day, every day, who witnessed his miracles, who saw his love and his compassion, who laughed with him around the campfire at night, how could Judas have betrayed him? Well, because Jesus, for Judas, was never, following Jesus was never about Jesus. It was always about Judas. It was about how Judas could profit from the relationship. When did, Jesus, when did Judas betray him? What does verse 10 say? What's the word? Then Judas went to betray him. So Judas went to betray him right after this little anecdote about the woman's anointing. It was right after this story, as soon as Jesus threatens the gravy train, as soon as, as Jesus puts an end to Judas's racketeering, that's when he turns and he decides that he's going to sell Jesus out. Judas's relationship with Jesus was always parasitic. Have you been in a relationship like this before? where you eventually realize, wait a minute, you don't actually care about me at all. <laughs> you're, you're using me. This is, you're, you're just in this relationship for the perks. Have you all been in a relationship like that? For my employee discount. That's why we're friends. For a listening ear and a shoulder to cry on because I'm the only one who will still put up with your incessant pity parties. For my wallet. I'm starting to realize you only call when you need something. For the sex, you're using me for my body. Have we all experienced some sort of relationship like this? Exploitation. Now here's the real question. How many of us would be honest enough to say that we've been the user? We've been the exploiter? What about in your relationship with Jesus? How many of us, if we're honest, first said yes to Jesus, not so much because of him, but because of us, because of what he could do for me 
It wasn't so much about intimacy with the great lover of your soul as it was about a ticket into heaven. Or maybe, as is the case for most of us, even more of us, a ticket out of hell. How many of you were scared into a relationship with Jesus? You can trace the origins of your faith back, not so much to wanting Jesus as not wanting eternal punishment. Maybe you were after even more immediate, temporal blessings, health, wealth, and happiness. How many of us came to Jesus because we were told that he was the key to unlocking your best life now? Or you were at a low point in your life, you had exhausted all other options, and in desperation you turned to Jesus, again, not so much in love for him as for help for you, as the remedy for your broken marriage your alcohol problem, your financial problems. If you're honest, it was really more about what Jesus could do for you than about who he is. I told y'all the story of how I came to faith, came to faith, use that term loosely in scare quotes, when I was young. I was jealous that everyone else got an extra cracker and some grape juice. Jesus was my ticket to an extra snack. And we laugh, but how different are we today, really? Do we sometimes love the perks that Jesus affords us more than we love Jesus? Jesus makes me feel good about myself. I like feeling like a selfless, upstanding, moral person. Jesus gives me purpose. I like having a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Jesus gives me answers. I like knowing why I'm here, how to live, where I'm going when I die. Jesus gives me security. I like not having to stress out about my salvation because of grace. Jesus gives me direction. I like not stumbling around in the darkness anymore having a clear objective standard to live by. Jesus gives me power. I like having 24-7 access to the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Jesus gives me comfort. I like knowing that no matter what this world throws at me, I have heaven waiting for me for eternity. See, none of these things are bad. But an idol is when a good thing becomes what? The main thing. The only thing, the primary thing. So the, naturally, the best things in life make for the worst, most insidious idols. Because who was that list that I just rattled off really about? Did you notice the repetition? Jesus gives me. I like feeling this way about myself. Jesus gives me. I, me, I. It's the original trinity, me, myself, and I. If you came to Jesus for you and not for him, if even this morning you are realizing and being convicted by the Holy Spirit that you have come to love the gift more than the giver, the Lord is giving you an opportunity today to confess that, to repent of that, and to turn back to him for no other reason than that he is worthy. He is worthy. Response number three to Jesus is that we appraise him. We appraise Jesus like the disciples do in verses four through five. To appraise means to estimate the monetary value of, to determine the worth of, to assess. 
I love how Kent Hughes puts it in his commentary. Judas, with calculator in hand, a man who knew the price of everything and the value of nothing, instantly calculated the woman's waste. He knew the price of everything, but the value of nothing. And what was the value? Verse 5, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. That is one year's wages for a common worker in the first century. Roughly 40,000 U.S. dollars today. But Mark tells us it wasn't just Judas who was upset. He says some were indignant, and Matthew specifies in his account who the some were. It was the other disciples. Judas gets the whole gang riled up, and they all pile on here. Why? Because they make a pretty compelling case, don't they? A pretty compelling argument. Isn't Jesus the champion of the poor, after all? Isn't Jesus the one who said, blessed are the poor? Theirs is the kingdom of God. Whatever you do for the least of these, you did for me. Jesus specifically directs on multiple occasions wealthy inquirers in the Gospels to give their money away to the poor. Isn't that Jesus? I mean, if we are just assessing this decision on paper, you can either sell the perfume and feed a starving family for a whole year, or you can dump it all on Jesus. How does it make any sense to choose the latter? The disciples have got a point, don't they? I mean, I don't see many people not. Am I the only like pragmatist here in the room? You can nod along. Like this passage is hard for me. I'm, I'm considering preaching, you know, at some point a, a, a series on the ten toughest texts in the Bible. This will probably be one of them for me. This is a hard. I am so. I am the consummate pragmatist. My favorite food is leftovers. I eat dinner out of the garbage can at least once a week when my wife tries to clear out the fridge <laughs> because I hate waste more than anything in the world. I love efficiency and I hate waste. I would have been first in line, hopefully not Judas. I would have been second in line after Judas. I would have been second in line to tar and feather this senseless, thoughtless, careless woman for her waste. What are you doing? Have you no concept for the value of things? And Jesus says, she's actually the only one who understands the value of things. The relative value. See, that's the thing. It's not that Jesus stopped caring for the poor all of a sudden. When Jesus says, you'll always have the poor with you, we shouldn't interpret that as, well, poverty, what are you going to do? Am I right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, he goes on to say, oh, you know, whenever you want, you can do good for them. And the implication there is you should always want. You should always seek out opportunities to, to do good for them, to, to care for the poor. We are commanded by Scripture, according to one list I found over 2,000 times in Scripture, to care for the poor. That's how important the poor are to Jesus. And yet, here, Jesus' utmost concern for the poor serves to reveal how even much more important Jesus himself is, how even much more valuable Christ is. If by contrast, caring for the poor here would actually be a misuse of the woman's resources. It's like 
It's like Jesus' appraisal of family. Jesus was not exactly the ideal poster boy for focus on the family that we make him out to be. Jesus is the one who said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, yes, even wife and children, he cannot be my disciple. It's not that Jesus hates families. Derek, make sure we're on the right slide there, sorry. It's not that Jesus hates families. He just thinks that that's not where our focus should be. In fact, if your love for your family looks anything other than hatred compared side by side with your love for Jesus, then you need to get your priorities in order. I don't know about y'all, but I will be honest enough to admit this morning that I am not there yet. That when I appraise the relative value that I give in my own life to my wife, to my daughter, I compare it side by side, with the value I give to Jesus, my love for him, I'll be honest, I don't think it looks like hatred. What about you? Judas appraised Jesus' life. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's roughly $200 today. That's how much Jesus was worth to Judas. So I ask you again this morning, friends, what's he worth to you? Is Jesus worth your Sunday morning chance to sleep in? Maybe every other Sunday, if it doesn't conflict with the kids' soccer schedule. Is Jesus worth your tithes and offerings? If the expenses this month allow it, 10% might be a little demanding. Is Jesus worth your comfort in your relationships? Because it might get awkward even heated if you bring Jesus up with that friend. It's safer to just leave Jesus out of interactions with non-church friends. Is Jesus worth your family, your job, your lifestyle, if he asked you to give it all up and give it to the poor? To move to Somalia, to evangelize an unreached people group. Answer this question for yourself this morning. What would I not be willing to give up for Jesus? That is your honest appraisal of his worth. And that brings us to response number four, which is worship. Literally, to assign or attribute worth. That's what Mary does in this passage. That's who this woman is, by the way. Mark Mark doesn't give us her name, but John does in his parallel account. This is the same Mary, who was sister of Martha and Lazarus, who Jesus has already praised for her worship back in Luke chapter 10. Do you remember that story? Where Martha was busy cooking and cleaning, serving Jesus. Again, all good things. Things that we would expect Jesus to commend her for. But what does Jesus say to Martha when she complains about Mary who isn't helping because she's too busy sitting at the Lord's feet, enraptured with his presence and in his teaching? He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away. Away from her. Friends, serving Jesus is good. 
Worshiping him is better. Feeding the poor is good. Feeding your soul with Jesus is better. Jesus says, indeed, one thing is necessary. Many things are good. One thing is necessary. One thing cannot be taken away from you. Perfume washes off. Okay, so sell it and give the money to the poor instead. They buy food, they eat it, it's gone. Everything in this world is passing away, but what? The word of the Lord endures forever. Jesus, God's incarnate word, endures, but not in the body. And Mary gets that. Jesus has already warned them, I'm about to suffer and die. You won't have me with you much longer. We are 42 hours away from Jesus' last breath. This is not the time to focus on the poor. Not the time to focus on dinner preparations, Martha. Not the time to focus on the family. Focus on your future. Focus on your investment portfolio, your 401k. Friends, where is your focus this morning? We need to recover that same sense of urgency for worship, for assigning Jesus' worth that Mary puts on display for us this morning. It's our focus on Jesus. Mary has no interest in appraising Jesus' relative worth. Anointing dinner guests with perfume was customary in this culture. The more important the guest, the more perfume you might use. We've already heard this stuff was not cheap. Mark emphasizes that many times to make sure we get the point. Alabaster flask, that's expensive. Pure undiluted nard, expensive. Very costly, the definition of expensive. Could have been sold for $40,000, expensive. He says it four different ways, but Mary has no interest in measuring out drop by drop how much Jesus is worth to her. You're worth a little more than that last dinner guest, but yeah, let's, let's be reasonable here. What does she do? She breaks it open and she dumps it on him. Her worship is lavish. It's excessive. It's borderline reckless. Jesus, you deserve it all. I'm holding nothing back from you. But it's not wasteful. Jesus says it's not wasteful. He praises her for it. She has done a beautiful thing for me. Friends, what beautiful things have we done, can we do for Jesus today, this next week? How much is Jesus going to be worth to us? The only proper response to what Jesus has done for us is a life lived recklessly, almost wastefully, for him and for his glory alone. But here's the real fascinating ending to this story and to this sermon. Jesus says in verse 9, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That's interesting. Don't you want to ask Mark, how are we supposed to remember her if you haven't even given us her name? 
See, I think Mark knew that it was Mary, and I think Mark intentionally omitted her name because he wanted to remind us again, this isn't about Mary. It's, it's not about retelling the story for her sake, about assigning her worth for her great worship. I don't know about you, but I've shared the gospel a number of times in my life, and never once have I referenced the anonymous woman who anoints Jesus in Mark chapter 14. So what is Jesus talking about? Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, she'll be remembered. I think he's talking about the symbolic visual that her anointing offers us for what Jesus himself is about to do for us on the cross. This is a symbolic visual, her anointing, that reminds us, that prefigures for us one chapter later what Jesus himself is about to do for us on the cross. Because a whole flask of the most valuable perfume the world has ever known doesn't begin to compare in value to a single drop of the cost that Jesus paid for you and me. It was his blood, the perfect, holy, spotless, blameless blood of the God of the universe that was shed for you and for me, for the forgiveness of your sins. And friends, like Mary, Jesus didn't measure it out drop by drop. He didn't say, okay, if you, if you sin this much, okay. But if you do that kind of sin, well, let's be reasonable here. He poured it out lavishly. He broke the vase and poured it out for our sake lavishly, excessively, borderline recklessly for you. But not wastefully. Jesus didn't waste a single drop. That means that if you have not acknowledged your sin, your rejection of him, and therefore accepted your need for his sacrifice, then biblically his sacrifice does not cover your sins. I want to make that really clear this morning. The Bible is absolutely clear about this. It makes no room for any notion of universalism, the idea that Christ's blood was shed for everyone, all are saved. No. It is only by grace that we can be saved through what? Through faith. Through faith. And friends, our faith is the best form of worship there is. Simple Surrender in faith is the best form of worship there is. In fact, Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God at all. You can't please God at all without faith. Faith is the starting point to your worship. And so I ask you one last time this morning, who is Jesus for you? Where is your faith? Where is your hope? Who holds your heart? What is Jesus worth to you? Let's pray. I want to give you a minute to simply respond 
in your own way, in your own heart, to the preaching of God's word this morning that you've heard. Jesus, we've already had a time of confession in this worship service, but we come back before you now to publicly, collectively recognize that we could never confess enough. That our hearts are sick, deceitful and wicked, beyond what we would ever care to admit, acknowledge, imagine. That we do not worship you as we should. That in our sin we reject you every single day. In small ways and sometimes big. That we've exploited you turned you into a vending machine, a genie. We've cared more about what you can do for us than who you are, than what you already did for us that is sufficient. That we appraise you. We've put different price tags on what you are worth to us. how much of our quiet time, daily routine, you're worth to carve out. Jesus, we haven't worshiped you in the way that Mary displays for us this morning, wholeheartedly, holding nothing back, you said she has done all that she could do in verse 8. What, what more could she do? She poured it all out. She broke the jar. Jesus, we don't want to be a people who measure out our worship for you drop by drop. And yet sometimes we are. And for that reason, we need you. We need your blood to cover our sin, the lack of worship, the lack of, of our lives that we give back to you as a, as a humble response. We rely this morning on your faithfulness in the face of our faithlessness for our standing with you, our standing with the Father. Father, we thank you that 
Ours is a faith that is not about how good we can be, how much money we can give to the poor, how much we can help others doing good. It's about good that's been done for us, not by us. And all we have to do is appreciate it. All we have to do is say yes. Say thank you. Say I need that, Jesus. In faith, accept the grace that has already been poured out for us. Jesus, if there's anyone here this morning who has never done that, who, who has until this morning rejected your lavish, abundant, exceeding, borderline reckless grace and love for them, who has tried to self-justify and make faith about what they can do instead of what you've already done. Father, I pray that you would convict them in a new way this morning, not because of my words, but because of your word. That you would prick their heart in a new way, make them acutely aware of their insufficiency to earn your favor, your love, your grace. Would you give them the strength to surrender? and simply receive with open hands. And for all of us this morning, I pray the same. We all struggle, fight that tendency. Would you give us to Jesus a hunger and a thirst for more of you? more of your grace to sink deeper into every part of our life, every part of our heart. Because we know that when it does, the rest will follow, the works will follow, the worship will follow. Because the only proper, right, possible response when we know, when we really know, when we really get it in our head and our heart, what you've done for us is a life lived with abandon recklessly for you, given back fully. Take the whole jar. Would you be glorified in that? In Christ's name we pray.